A carpenter philosopher friend of mine, and no, I'm not talking about Jesus. I have another friend who's a carpenter philosopher, but he made a statement to me many years ago that I've never forgotten. It's one of those profound statements you kind of know, but when it's said in a different way, it gets your attention. And this friend of mine said to me, Craig, none of us is going to make it out of this alive. I thought, so true. Unless the Lord returns, none of us is going to make it out of this alive. And so we have weekends like this one, Memorial Day. You know, a day instituted originally to, to remember those who died in battle. But now it's been extended really to, to remember all those who have died. And so over the course of this weekend, lots of flowers are going to be delivered to lots of different cemeteries. And people are going to be reminded of the certainty of death and the brevity of life. Because it doesn't really matter how many years are encompassed in that that little dash between the dates on the headstone. We all know that time passes so very, very quickly. And so it seems fitting to me on this Memorial Day weekend that we ask this question, what is it that we should do with the lives that God has given us? How is it that we should invest this gift that God has given to us? As believers in Christ, I hope that our answer will be this, that you and I must really invest our lives in the lives of others. That's the truth, I hope, that we'll be convinced of this morning as we come to the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have your Bible with you, I want to ask you to open to that passage. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 836, page 836, you'll find 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians chapter 2. When you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, your truth. Thank you for speaking it to us. Thank you for preserving it for us. Father, we know that you use the truth of your word with the power of your spirit to bring about real change, powerful change in our lives. And so we pray now that you would do that again as you've been faithful to do in the past. Change us by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I had lunch this week with a a pastor friend of mine who has a pastor friend who is planting a new church in Las Vegas, you know, Sin City. And people are coming to faith through the ministry of this new church plant. Now, what do you imagine might be the biggest challenge that this church planter faces? Let me just interject here that most church planters... I, being one of them, often list challenges like this when planting a church. 
Well, what do we do about music? We need a a worship leader. What do we do with the youth? We need someone to lead the youth. Where are we going to meet? We need a, a place for our congregation to meet. And so forth and so on. None of those challenges made the list of this church planter. He said that the biggest challenge his church faces is what to do with the strippers and the prostitutes. They are coming to faith in Christ. And when they do, the strippers won't strip anymore and the prostitutes won't return to prostitution. Praise God, right? But the challenge is, what do you do with them? Many of them don't know any other kind of work. They've invested their life in this work, some of them for decades. It's their only means of support. And at this point in their lives, they're not particularly employable for other careers. So what can the church do? The church could respond, well, you got yourself into this mess. You get yourself out of it. But that's not what this church is doing. Here's how they are meeting this particular challenge. Some members of this church who are employable are taking on extra jobs to make extra money. And they are giving that extra money to the church to give to these women and their families to support them. While these women are so early on in this renewing and restoring and redeeming work that the Lord is doing in their hearts and their lives. That is a very real investment in the lives of very real people. And that story reminded me and convicted me as I heard it this week that no one is a throwaway. No one is a throwaway. People of every kind are worth investing in because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. So let's look at this passage and pray that God will use his word to convince us that people are worth it and that by looking at his word, he'll give us a passion for people in such a way that we're willing to invest our lives in others as well. Look first with me in verse 17. Paul writes, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again. The New American Standard translates it this way. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Torn away, bereft. Intense longing, great desire. You cannot miss the intensity of emotion in what Paul writes here. You cannot miss the passion that Paul has for people. He didn't want to leave them, and he couldn't wait to get back to these people. But what you might miss is that Paul's longing to be with these people was for a very specific reason. Paul didn't want to get back to the Thessalonians just because he enjoyed hanging out with them, though I'm sure that he did. Paul was intentionally Christ-centered in his hanging out, and that's what we're going to see. And that's the balance that you and I need to strike when we come together with one another, particularly in our community groups, 
to hang out. We love being together, don't we? We love to, to eat together, enjoy one another's company. But I know this, we have cheated ourselves. We have cheated ourselves if we aren't also intentional in our conversations about Jesus. We are missing an investment opportunity to invest in one another, encouraging words about Jesus, investing in one another, encouraging truths about Jesus, investing in one another, encouraging stories about the powerful work that Jesus is doing right now in us and among us. That's what Paul was intentional about. His word choice in verse 17 indicates that. The Greek word translated torn away or bereft in verse 17 is aporphanidzo. Aporphanidzo, right? You hear the word orphan. In that word, it's where we get the word orphan. And that's what the word means in Greek. It means to make an orphan of. Paul felt as if he were leaving these new believers as orphans when he had to leave them. And so now we're beginning to get at what motivates Paul's passion for people and why he wants to be with them. And if you're a parent here, you kind of get what, what Paul is feeling. No parent wants their child or their children to be orphaned. Actually, we fear that possibility. I'm telling you, that fear is only now beginning to release itself in my life because my youngest is 19. So I'm like, okay, well, Lord, you've gotten them all to adulthood. Though I believe in the sovereignty of God, I didn't always trust in it. So as a result, from the time of the birth of my first child, 27 years ago, I wanted to make sure that nothing happened to me and or Kathy. Because I did not believe that anyone else could care for our children or love our children as much as we did. And so now I have a confession to make. Even though I'm supposed to be all spiritual and stuff like that. And even though I prefer to go on a missions trip with my wife, Kathy, I've got to tell you that part of me is relieved when we don't go on those trips together. You know, just in case something might happen. But often we do go together. So one year, Kate, our oldest daughter, went to India a few weeks before Kathy and I went to Uganda, and we would be gone to Uganda before Kate got back from India. Well, it occurred to me that while she was on this trip, Kate would turn 18 years old. She would become an adult. So listen to what I did, the wise and compassionate father. I sent her an email. I said, Kate, since your mom and I are going to Africa, and since you'll be 18 before we leave, we just changed our wills, which we did. If anything happens to us, we're leaving the other four kids to you. <laughs> really smooth move, right? She's halfway around the world. Her parents might be killed, and she's responsible for four children. And all this information comes to her via email. I know she's forgiven me. All that to say, it's the depth of parental love and concern for your children that causes you to long to be with them and to take care of them and to invest in them and, 
and to prepare them for life. And I believe Paul was inspired by the Spirit to choose this word, ap orphan idzo, to show that the depth of this feeling can be had and be extended to those far beyond our biological children and our biological families. Paul certainly had those feelings for these Thessalonians. So he intensely longed to be with them, to see them face to face so that he could invest in them. And we all know how dramatic Paul's story is. He's a living example of the reclaiming, redeeming, restoring, renewing work of Christ. And he had so much that he wanted to share with these Thessalonians about who Christ is and about all that he can do. So let me backtrack a little and tell you how Paul met these people. It's a great story because it shows us that our investment in the lives of people is truly worth it. Acts 17 records what happens. Paul was in Thessalonica on one of his missionary tours. And he spent three weeks there investing in the lives of people, telling them the gospel, telling them about Jesus. He took them to Scripture. And he reasoned with them, and he showed them how the person of Christ matched everything that God said the Messiah would do and would be. And so he proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. Now listen to the dividends of Paul's investment in the lives of these people. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Because Paul believed people were worth it. Because he invested time in them and effort into them, the people into whom he invested came to faith in Christ. And it was true faith. Not just a persuasion of their mind, not just the winning of a logical, well-presented argument. Their hearts were transformed. And that spilled over into their lives. Paul describes these people in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He writes, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is real life change. We could spend the remainder of the morning morning talking about idols and what they are and the power idols have in our lives. We hear that word idol and we sometimes tune out because we believe we don't have idols because we picture these temples and these statues made of whatever and people bowing before them. We say, oh, I don't do that. I don't have any idols. But the reality is that we do. Because I've Quoted often, John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. And so I always feel compelled to remind us that we have idols. An idol is simply a person or a thing that serves as Christ replacements in our lives. That's what idols are and that's what idols do. They replace Christ. They're things that we trust. Idols are people that we trust or in whom we put our confidence because we don't really, at the end of the day, believe that we can really trust Christ for what we need. And we know those common idols, don't we? Money, maybe not having a lot of it, but having enough of it so that 
we're secure. Position, having the right position or the high enough position gives us security. You know, we have the idol of reputation. Well, I'm the best, fill in the blank. I'm the best preacher. Well, I'm the best homeschool mommy in the entire world. Other people. When our idols are in place, we feel secure and content. Everything will be all right. But start messing with people's idols. (laughs) Start messing with people's idols, and you'll see the real person come out. Money, you know, whatever it is. Get in the way of the glory that somebody is after and watch out. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel messes with our idols. That's a good thing to say together, isn't it? The gospel messes with our idols. Say it. The gospel messes with our idols, and it does. And not only does the gospel mess with our idols, the gospel topples them. Because the gospel requires faith. And it requires that we trust in Christ and not ourselves and not our stuff and not anyone else. And so the gospel becomes this annoying check in our lives every day because it makes us look at who and it makes us look at what we are trusting and putting our security in. Well, these people, these Thessalonians, turn from idols. They change their mind about them. They realized that the idols were not what they thought they were. They realized that the idols could not do for them what they believed the idols could do. And so they turned away from them, and they turned toward God, the one who could do those things for them. And then Paul writes, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is the transformation that was taking place in the heart of these people. Their story of the power of God in their lives. The transformation that was taking place. It spread in their own country. But not just their own country, but around the world. And Paul says, for not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Listen, I needed to tell you this story about how Paul met these people and the story of their transformation because you and I need to see the full gospel circle. We need to be reminded of everything that God does. Paul told the story of Jesus to people who had never heard it. Gentiles, Jews, prominent people, maybe strippers, maybe prostitutes, I don't know. These people believe the gospel. Because they believed the gospel, they turned away from their former way of life to serve God. Once they had made that turn, they began to seek to imitate Christ in their life, doing what he did and loving what he loved. And then the news of their transformation rang out from them to other people, and so the gospel circle began all over again. People believed the gospel. They turned from idols, and they lived for Christ. This is how God works. This is how God works. When his people invest what he has given them in the lives of others. Paul thought the investment was worth it. That's why he kept preaching. That's why he kept teaching. And that's why he didn't want to be torn away from from God's people. That's why he longed to be with them. So that he could keep investing in them. So that the gospel circle could keep looping. Repeating itself over and over and over again. Paul made the investment, 
and God brought the return. Paul thought the investment was worth it because he thought people are worth it. Look with me in verse 19 and 20. Paul writes, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our joy and glory. People are Paul's joy and crown. And the crown to which Paul refers in this verse, it's that wreath made of foliage. It's placed on the head of the victor. And I I feel like all of us here have probably seen enough of those lavish 1950s Technicolor Spectacular movies, right? You know, those big splashy movies from the 50s? Filmed and set in ancient Rome and all those temples and all those togas and on the heads of all those senators, there's the wreath. And we watch the movie and some, some good-looking strong guys bound to win some competition. And what do they do? They come and put a crown or one of these wreaths on his head. We get the story. We've seen it over and over. And, of course, the recipient of that laurel wreath, you know, they, they just beam with pride and with joy because, well, they're winners, Right? They winner. They're winners. They're victors. That's the kind of crown that everyone who heard this letter of Paul would picture in their minds. They saw these crowns all the time because they lived in the Roman world. Victorious people were given crowns and all the glory that went with them. Now, for Paul, the crown is not foliage. The crown is people reclaimed, renewed, restored redeemed people. They are victory for Paul. They are joy for Paul. They are glory for Paul. And it's people that represent for Paul a life well lived and an investment rightly made. Even though Paul had to forego the glory that the world was going to offer him, the power and the prestige that was going to be his and the position and the money and all that went with it, Paul had to forego that, but it was worth it. For him to receive this crown, a crown of people redeemed by Christ. So Paul has lined his life up with Jesus' teaching. Matthew 25, it records Jesus' teaching just hours before his death. He's telling his disciples about his most certain return. And he tells them the the parable, that famous story we know about the talents. You know the story, the master goes away and he gives one servant five talents and one servant three talents and the other servant one talent and while he's gone the first two servants they invest what's been given to them and they double the return so that when the master returns he's got twice as much money because these servants wisely invested what the master had given to them and so what does the master say to these servants well done Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. That's exactly what Paul did. He invested what the Lord had entrusted to him in the lives of others, and it paid off. And the Thessalonians are evidence of that. You and I do well. Listen, you and I do well. And we are good and faithful servants When we invest what God has given to us in the lives of others, truly. 
And if you limit that just to money, you don't understand the fullness of what the Lord wants for us, from us. It certainly takes money. And it certainly takes resources to do what God has called us to do. Acts of justice and mercy. It takes resources to protect and to defend and provide for the weak and the marginalized in our culture. Those who at the time of the writing of Scripture were called widows and orphans and strangers in the land. We as a country are are like those believers in that church plant in Las Vegas. Those of us who have been blessed with the ability and blessed with the opportunity to make money ought to make as much money as we possibly can make so that we can give that money to support the work of the gospel and the work of justice and mercy to which the gospel calls us among those people who have not experienced the same blessings nor the same opportunities that have been given to us. Yes, we should invest our resources in the lives of others. But our investment goes beyond that because God has invested his spirit in us as well. And the spirit that God has given to us is a spirit of faith and not a spirit of fear so that we face the world and all that happens in it. And you and I know well the craziness of the world in which we live. We face it all with faith and not fear. What a gift we can give to others as they observe our faith, no matter what is going on. Romans 8, verse 15. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. What a gift. Amen. Y'all awake? Spirit that allows us to cry, Abba, Father, children of the living God, that's our identity. And what confidence and security it should give us to know that we are loved by and fathered by the God of the universe and how that should change our behavior. It should release us from the struggle. And we're all engaged in a struggle to gain what is of far less value than the fatherly love of God that he has already given to us. And when we are free from that struggle and all the time that it takes in our lives, what can we do with that time and those resources? We can invest where? In other people. That's God's plan for our lives. God has invested in us a spirit of love and joy of peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. We get to invest that in the lives of others too so that they see all the fruit of the Spirit in us. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, people made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, they are the treasure. They are eternal, safe, and secure forever in Christ. And so we invest in them now. All kinds of people, 
in every segment of the gospel circle, offering a cup of cold water if that's what we need to do, or a warm blanket in Jesus' name, whatever the need, asking questions. Where are you on your faith journey? Sharing the gospel, serving them, sacrificing for them, teaching them to obey, discipling them, encouraging them to serve others over and over and over again. The gospel circle loops. Let's make sure that we have that full gospel circle here. Because if you and I don't invest our lives in the lives of others, how will we make a difference in this city for Jesus' sake? And so we need to pray that the Lord will give us the passion for people that marked Paul's life. Pray so that we'll believe that people are worth it. All kinds of people are worth it. Strippers and prostitutes and south of broad millionaires. There's no one who is not worth investing in. It's an act of worship to do this. We can't honor Christ more than by loving what he loves and who he loves, people who need to be redeemed, restored, and renewed. We can't glorify him better than in seeing what brings him glory. And what brings him glory is seeing the gospel work itself out, the gospel that he came and gave his life to make a reality, radically transforming people. A Christ-centered life is a life of investing in others. So, Memorial Day, let it remind us that no one, no one is going to make it out of this alive. None of us. So we must invest right now. These are the days. These are our days. When we take our turn, prophets like Elijah, they had their day. They had their opportunity to make their investment, to declare the word of the Lord. Prophets like Ezekiel, he had his day. He had his time to watch the Lord breathe life into dry bones and, and, and restore them. David, he had his day to worship the Lord, to write songs of praise to him. But now, today, today is our day. Because you and I know that there is no God like our God, right? Who has revealed himself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is our day. While we wait for the Lord to return, to be laborers in his vineyard, investing our time and our energy and our resources and people, this is our day to honor Christ. Lord, for people you died, this is our day to demonstrate our love for you by investing in the lives of people that you place around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would do just that. Your word is real and true, and we see clearly what motivated Paul and what he was willing to do in his life. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us, prevent us from setting Paul apart as so very different from us because, well, Paul was an apostle and we're not. Father, dispel that thinking if we would attempt to use it to get ourselves off the hook, to think, well, It's the job of others to invest their lives in others. No, Lord, it's our job. It's the job of all those that you have reclaimed and renewed and restored and redeemed. It's our job to be involved in that process, partnering with you 
as you do that work in others. So Father, I pray now that you would put it in our hearts that we love people, we have passion for people, that we see all people as worth it, all kinds of people. Lord, that we would no longer view people only from a worldly point of view, but that we would see beyond where they are now and what they're doing right now and what they look like right now to see what they can be as you restore and renew them and deposit your spirit in them. Father, help us as we wait for you to return, which you certainly will do. Help us to invest our lives in what's really important. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen.